Hello, and welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. GX Goldfine, and whether you're watching the video version at FunkinStuff.net or on YouTube, or listening to the audio podcast version on iTunes, Spotify, or from any other leading providers, I thank you as always so much for your continued interest and support in what we do here. Speaking of which, be sure you subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube. You'll get early premieres and lots of fun, good stuff by doing that, and we appreciate the support. Speaking of support, I want to give a quick shout out to the Funk Hall of Fame and Exhibition Center in Dayton, Ohio, of which I am proud to be an official Funk Ambassador. Keep the Funk alive. Get more information at thefunkcenter.org. Also, if you like this cool gear I'm wearing, support the program. Uh, there's a store at funkinstuff.net. You can get truth and rhythm gear or funkinstuff.net uh, gear, all kinds of great stuff, and uh, show that support. So today's episode, I am delighted to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership for the first show recorded in the new decade, bassist John Heinz, founder and ringleader of the funk R&B All-Stars Collective known as the Big Ol' Nasty Get Down. With roots that trace back to 2007, Heinz, whose other musical exploits include the Lee Boys, another star-studded musical collective known as Trulio Disgracius, assembled dozens of like-minded yet diverse players in an attempt to bring the magic of live improvisation into a studio setting. The fruits of those efforts thus far have been two albums under the Big Ol' Nasty Get Down, or as the acronym goes, BONG. Volume 1 dropped in 2012 and featured George Clinton and several members of the P-Funk All-Stars, as well as a bunch of accomplished musicians from the jam band scene. Volume 2 was released in 2018 and included, among the many others, Speech, Fred Wesley, Vernon Reed, Larry Dunn, Ronquette Spearman, Angela Moore, and Taylor Dane. In recent years, a revolving lineup has hit stages across the country to bring the bong amalgamation of funk, R&B, New Orleans jazz, hip-hop, and other influences to the people. And more volumes of the collective's eclectic creations are said to be in the works as uh, what could have very well wound up as a one-off novelty is now turning into its own sonic underground movement which is very cool. And very cool to have John here. John, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Scott. I appreciate it. Happy New Year. Hey, Happy New Year to you, you know. How's it feel to be the first one to kick off uh, 2020 for us? Love it. What a way yeah. to kick it off, huh? Definitely. Uh, this won't air probably until February, okay. but uh, it is only early January as we're meeting today. So, And where are you coming to us from? Uh, Los Angeles. L.A., okay. Yeah. And is that where you're from? Um, not originally, but um, I've been here for about the last probably 10 years now. I moved here from Asheville, North Carolina, but uh, <laughs> I'm originally from Indiana. Indiana, okay. Well, you brought a smile to my face because I'm from Los Angeles, and now I'm in uh, outside Charlotte, North Carolina. Oh, rad. Very cool. And I've been out here about 12 or 13 years, so we kind of... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Kind of traded places. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah. Um, so what part of L.A., if you don't mind me asking? Uh, Hollywood Hills. Okay. 
so I went to Santa Monica High School, if you know where that is. And yeah. Yeah. So I miss those stopping grounds, you know, I mean, because it lives and breathes music out there. So, yeah, it's it's such a fun place to be. When when I finally made it out here, I, I felt like I was finally home in a lot of ways because there's just so many creative people kind of on their own schedule, doing their own thing. And it um, lend, lended well for my personality type and my crazy hours and all that. So, um, it's, yeah, it's great out here. But I, I loved I loved North Carolina too. There's it's it's such a different pace and it's a chance to just kinda enjoy nature and, and uh particularly in Asheville where where I was living previous to LA. It's just such a beautiful area of wonderful people there and super talented musicians as well. Yeah, I love it too. There is a little bit of that vibe in the Asheville area, the kind of bohemian thing and um, you know, I got to say, probably more music I'm interested in seems to come to Asheville than to Charlotte in a lot of instances. Yeah, it, Asheville has kind of become a mecca for and, and just a hub for so many different genres and different different acts of all levels. And um, Charlotte, Charlotte, it seems like when things changed around with the neighborhood theater, Years ago, it kind of, I don't know, the, the scene seemed to have changed a little bit as well. And I don't know, it's, uh, I haven't played there in years, but I know that there's, uh, there's definitely some, some rad new clubs that some of the friends uh, and some of the folks in the band are playing at in Charlotte. Yeah, I'm hoping, you know, maybe I can help influence any way I can and bring more funk here because back in the day, you know, all the funk groups would come through here. But nowadays, it's kind of slim pickings. And I do miss being in Los Angeles and getting such a, you know, big choice of musical uh, live performances. So Yeah, yeah, it's, it, it is great here with, with the amount of music that, that rolls in the town. Ready to dive in for some history and some, some questions? Yeah, yeah, that's it. So you said you're from Indiana originally. Yeah. Um, how and when did you first get into music? I got into music, I think I was probably maybe five. And I just randomly asked my, my parents for a guitar. And I think probably some of that came from seeing um, some other kids playing guitar and folk group in church. And I just kind of thought that was cool and, and, and thought that I might want to try that. And so um, it wasn't too long after that, I wound up with my, my first guitar and the journey began. Was it one of those serious jobs that so many guys that have come on the show, they're like, oh, my first guitar was a Sears, whatever. I don't, yeah, it, it wasn't anything fancy. It, it, it had to be black, though. That was, I, I just remember that it had to be black and it had to sort of look like this guitar that one of the kids that I knew was playing. And um, and so that was, that was really the, the key. We bought it at a music store. It wasn't, a, it wasn't at a Sears, but it certainly wasn't a high level anything. But it was black. Yeah, six strings. So. so you look cool, at least. 
Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. So um, that was that was the first stringed instrument, and then from there, I think I wound up getting an ovation. Yeah, an ovation. It was a little bit bigger, a little bit more playable, and uh, yeah. And did you ever take lessons, or how did you kind of progress? I took some lessons in elementary school. Not very many. I, I I didn't focus on really practicing a whole lot. Um, I think I picked up the basic patterns pretty quickly and more or less survived off that to some degree. And um, it really wasn't until later in life that I really started to dig in to um, some of the more important aspects of musicality. And, and performing. Let's talk a little bit about the development of your musical sensibility. So, you know, when you were, let's say, in your teens and as you were uh, growing up, what types of people were you listening to? What kind of uh, styles and genres did you gravitate toward? I went through a few different phases. Um, but the one constant was always kind of in the Faith No More, Chili Peppers, Jane's Addiction sort of realm. Um, Primus was a huge, huge influence. But there was also, being from Bloomington, Indiana, um, I was exposed to a lot of John Mellencamp, a lot of Tom Petty, um, a lot of that kind of Americana roots uh rock and i mean i guess that's to me that that's like true american rock and roll like the the tom petty's and the john mellencamp's and springsteen's um but my we as a kid we would take um road trips in this big band that my dad had and my uncle is a musician he would send my dad different mixtapes of stuff that he was listening to and i can remember you know, stuff like John Denver and the Eagles and Waylon Jennings and, and all that also being kind of in the peripheral. But as I moved into high school, I also started listening to a lot of R&B pop. So I would be going to see, let's say, Russian Primus one night and then trying to figure out who I could talk into going to see like MC Hammer, Vanilla Ice, and, and Vogue the next night with me. Mm. And there was, to me, it was never about like, it had to be one style that I was committed to. I, I really found elements in a lot of different styles of music that I, that I enjoyed. Um, so I was, I just kind of floated freely um, in, sonically at least when when uh when i was kind of exploring the music that that was you know calling me so yeah you had that heartland influence and was high school though in indiana or that was in north carolina that was in connecticut <laughs> um, yeah my, my dad uh recently retired as the head of the uh accounting department at the University of Kansas. And we were living in Connecticut at the time when a lot of my exposure to 
the broader spectrum of music was happening. Um, when I was back in Indiana, it was, I didn't have a lot of exposure beyond like church music. And it was always crazy because I go over to people's houses that weren't in like, you know, that, that hadn't been really um, limited with their exposure to music. And they play Led Zeppelin. I'd be like, whoa, what's this? Or I'd see Twisted Sister on the TV. I'm like, rad, this is, this is all really cool. Um, but I didn't know where to necessarily find it. Um, although, oddly, the very first CD I ever got as a child was Run DMC Raising Hell. Mm. I like that play. That's a good starting point. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Beastie Boys licensed the ill was not far behind that. Mm -hmm. um, and then it was, but that was, that was in, in Indiana. And then when I moved to Connecticut, we moved down the street from a kid that was way into music and he had a bass and I was going to buy another bass because I, I had traded my first bass for a shitty moped to ride around the streets of Bloomington, Indiana on illegally as a 13 year old. So, um, so I had, I had to, to eventually replace that. And so when we got to Connecticut, um, it was pretty quickly thereafter that I got another bass and started hanging out with, um, his name was Eric and he was really into metal. So that's when, you know, I started getting exposed to Iron Maiden. Um, you know, so many, so many different, different types of things. But oddly, funk was always also, I guess, kind of in the, the peripheral as well, because I would hear it and I would love it. But I didn't know what the hell it was. <laughs> and then it would go away. And then I'd be walking around somewhere and some rad ass like Sly and the Family Stone would be playing somewhere. I'm like, whoa, that's awesome. But I wouldn't know. I mean, there's no Shazam back then or anything like that. And, you know, I'm in Indiana where it's not really people aren't super hip to a lot of deeper cuts and, and things that were um, really raging on the East and West Coast. And so... Um, I mean, I guess, I mean, Detroit obviously had a, had a huge scene going, but, but where I was from in Indiana, I mean, we were limited to pretty much pop radio a lot of times or some country bullshit. Right, I shouldn't yeah. say bullshit, because there's country that I like, it was just the bullshit that we were being fed. Yeah, plus in the 80s, I mean, 80s was not, you know, Funk's golden decade, especially, you know, when MTV got big and all that, it was sort of that other stuff that you're talking about a lot, you know, in yeah. terms of um, mass exposure. Um, you know, interesting, I last year, 2019, now it's last year, I was in uh, Indiana for the first time in my life. I had some business that took me to Indianapolis. So oh, right. uh, I got a little taste of it. Actually, that city in size and kind of the way it's laid out reminded me a lot of Charlotte, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you had sort of this, um, you know, rock and, and hip hop and rap and maybe a little bit of funk, um, all kind of coming together. 
when did you first, you know, play bass in a band or, you know? So I had a band when I was in high school for a short period of time. It was like from eighth grade to maybe like 10th grade that I had this, this little band. And, um, and then to be honest, I, I put the bass down in music as a performer or as something that I practiced, I put that down for many years and kind of focused on more of a life and business, I guess. Um, I had sort of dismissed the possibility of music being a career by the time I was 18 or 19. And I'm not sure if I'd ever necessarily thought of it as a, as a career path because I, I, I just didn't know where to begin. And um, so I focused on business because that, that seemed to come easier to me and, and make more sense. And so I did that for a number of years and I eventually started collecting bases, I guess. Um, and eventually as more and more bases showed up, I started playing them. <laughs> And I'm like, well, you know, this is kind of fun. I, I, now I remember why, why I did this as a kid. So I guess right around the time that I was 30, I, I realized a couple things. I had this, this kind of life-changing moment. And I realized that I was doing a lot of what I was doing career-wise, not for myself. It was mainly what seemed to be fitting the mold. I was like, you know, my life's kind of bullshit. I think I'm going to walk away from everything and try music. And I didn't know what that meant. I, I thought maybe that would be buying and selling guitars on eBay. And lo and behold, this crazy set of circumstances happened and I wound up on the road to Lee Boys. And next thing you know, I'm touring the country with these amazing guys that are showing me the business side of stuff. They're showing me how to get back on stage and perform. They're letting me perform. Um, and coming from a business background and knowing that, one, the Lee Boys was not my band. I was given a an opportunity to learn a lot from the structure that they had um, created and the momentum they had created over the years to get my feet wet. And that ultimately I was going to need to come up with some idea of my own that was going to enable me to stay in the industry, but also not go back to being in a garage band. Because that was the thing. It was like, okay, if I left the Lee Boys... I don't want to go back to square one. I, I like the idea of having festivals hire you to play. I like the idea of working with a caliber of musician that's committed to the professional side and this is what they do and, and this is what they're going after. I didn't wanna I didn't wanna go back to like talking guys out of like jamming on Van Halen tunes and like writing some some new stuff. So while I was out with the Lee Boys 
and, and coming from the business background, I knew the importance of contacts and being the level of musicians that the Lee boys are, it lent to a lot of musicians from other bands wanting to sit in with them. And since I was kind of like quasi tour manager, I was oftentimes the starting point to facilitate um, those sit-ins. And I just started getting numbers. And eventually I realized a couple things that um, I wanted to try and, and well, I'm probably getting ahead of everything, but like, you know, that, that, that's kind of how I wound up in the industry. It's the, that's the cliff noted version of the, the, the little journey into the, the madness. Well, so did you have a friend that was in the Lee boys or that was a friend of a friend or. So here's how, okay. <laughs> Let me just, I'll just tell the whole story. Cause I, I, always, <laughs> I always feel, I, <clears throat> I oftentimes feel like a time thief if I'm sitting here going on and on about this story that maybe nobody gives a shit about. <laughs> but uh, well, I'm curious at least. <laughs> so I had, or my 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 very good friend Chris Chu from the North Mississippi All Stars, the bass player from the Mississippi All Stars, I I connected with many years ago, and. He was really my only, um, I guess, my only real active contact to the festival world, to that music scene, so on and so forth. And the way he and I met was with that bass collection that I was, I was mentioning before. I would oftentimes buy basses from the players that influenced me, oftentimes staged, used gear, so on and so forth. Um, and so I wound up making a deal to buy one of Chris's basses and we melded a friendship over that whole acquisition. And so they were playing um, Langarado in 2007 in South Florida. And I was living in South Florida at the time. And I hit Chris up and he put me and my friend on um, the guest list. And so I wound up, um, how did it all play out? So the Miss I wound up meeting a couple of the Lee boys on the Mississippi All-Stars stage during their performance. And later on that night after the festival wound up wrapping up, we wound up all going out and drinking. And I got just master blastered to the point that the next morning I realized there was no way I was going back to that festival for like the afternoon. I needed some recovery time, probably a lot of Pedialyte and just a few moments to reset. And somewhere along the line while I'm laying there kind of all hung over, I looked at my friend and, I, and I, I said, we need to go back to my house and get my base. She looks at me and she's like, are you crazy? Like, why do we need to go get your base? 
This is nobody knows who you are. You're not playing. Why are we going to drive an hour to go get your base? And somehow I, I talk her into going on this adventure with me and we go get my base. So Chris and I are in contact that afternoon and we decide that we're going to meet up at, um, at the culture room for sound check for this super jam that's going to be going on later that night with some of the different players in the festival. So we get there and there's some time to kill and I decide to take my bass out of the car and I, I take the bass out and I go and I sit down in the, um, I guess in the, the general admission area and I just start playing around and uh, Alvin Lee from the Lee Boys comes up and he goes, man, that's a nice bass. You sound good. Can I see that? Picks it up and he just starts wailing on it, like playing some awesome stuff and i'm just looking i'm like wow that's all right that's how that's played and he says to me he goes man my nephew would would love to see this he's a bass player too or you can be around in a little bit he's like yeah i'll be around so nephew shows up and it ends up it's it's little al who i've met the day before on the mississippi all-star stage and he's checking out the bass like yeah this is rad blah 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 I'm like, well, if you want to use it for a couple songs for your performance tomorrow, feel free. He's like, yeah, I'll do that. So we show up the next day. Next day, they've got a noon set. They're filling in for Gabriella and Rodrigo, who couldn't get their visas approved. So one, the Lee boys really weren't supposed to be playing there that day. And the other interesting thing is Little Al is a seven-string bassist, and he doesn't mess with anything without seven strings most of the time, and this bass is a four-string. So, trust me, it, it's, it's all going to come together. It's all going to come together. Thank you for your patience with this story. Um, so, anyway, they do the performance, and instead of taking the bass all the way back to the car, I ask if I can store it in their van, which is parked right next to the stage. And they're like, yeah, of course, just give us a call when you're ready to go. So I give them a call about three hours later, no answer. Give them another call, no answer. Finally, he calls me back. I'm like, hey, it's John, can I get my bass? I'm getting ready to go. And it's Uncle Al. And he's like, oh no, I've, I've left. I'm halfway to Orlando. Don't worry, like we're gonna we're gonna figure this out. And I'm like, okay, okay, no no problem. So he's like, call me on Monday. Monday rolls around, I call him up. He says, "Hey, how's it going? So how are we gonna deal with the base?" I said, "Well, you know, I can we can work out some shipping or whatever." He goes, "Well, you know what? Check this out." We've got to get, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. He, he says, you know, what are you doing right now for work? I'm like, well, I'm in the business world and I'm, I'm looking to get out of it and do something with music. He goes, oh, interesting. He goes, well, what are you doing Friday night? I said, well, I got nothing going on. He goes, well, I'll tell you what, we've got a show in Lake Worth right down the street from you. You said you lived in West Palm, right? I'm like, yeah. He goes, why don't you come down, bring you the bass. You get up, sit in with us. And if you like what's going on, hop in the van and 
come along for the ride. And so that's how that happened. <laughs> wow. A base that wasn't supposed to be at a festival that the Lee Boys weren't supposed to be playing at on a base that the bass player typically wouldn't ever play. <laughs> but weren't you um, anxious about being able to elevate or, you know, meet whatever expectations there might be? Yeah. I mean, to in, in the sense of, of, like, going on the road with them and meeting that level? In the sense of, uh, well, musically. Oh, musically, I... Shit. Musically, I was so far behind. Like, that first show that I plugged in was, like, Trainwreck Central. I remember I got handed that seven-string bass, and I was like, I don't know what the fuck to do with this thing. It looked like something you landed a plane on, not, like, played on. And so, like, you know, they're all jamming, and I'm trying to make them unplug the bass and plug my four-string. I mean, it was a nightmare. But it was one of the best kind of moments because it doesn't get worse than that. <laughs> yeah. Well, you talk about shit on your first show you're good yeah flying without a net for sure so yeah i mean it was it was incredibly intimidating because these folks had all spent years and years and years honing their skills and and the time that i spent working in the business world they were spending practicing and becoming incredible at what they what they do and so you know i get lifted into a certain I guess I don't know a certain circle of players that all of a sudden I'm looking around and my peers are Victor Wooten and O'Teal and all these guys that are in these bands that are playing alongside the Lee Boys and stuff like that and I'm just like holy shit this is this is uh, I got I got some catching up to do. Yeah, that's some serious woodshedding. Yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, so you just committed yourself to doing what you needed to do, and so you could stay afloat. I did, yeah. And um, one of the very first gigs that I did with the Lee Boys was another Super Jam at a festival, and the. Um, what was it the second night of the festival? There's there's a super jam. This time I was part of it, and I started watching the energy between the players on stage that were just going for it, and the interaction with the audience. I was like, you know, I've always heard that one of the big challenges in the studio is catching that energy of the live aspect. So I started thinking, like, well. Maybe if you created a situation that had the elements of the live aspect, you might be able to capture that. And so that's their journey. That's kind of where the, the big old nasty get down concept began, was just seeing the super jam happen, thinking, well, if I could put a bunch of players from different bands kind of in the same room, maybe bring some... Um, people that are 
huge fans of music into that same room. And if that room were maybe a studio, some cool shit could happen. And that's, that's where it began. Did you uh, kind of bounce that idea off some of your friends and see like what they thought? Or did you just... Yeah, they thought, they thought I was crazy. <laughs> I mean, they, they, they liked the idea. And I, I don't think they thought the idea in itself was crazy. They were thinking about the logistical side of things. And in that manner, they were absolutely 100% correct. I was crazy. Because it's logistically, you know, as you can imagine, it's hard enough to get people that have a lot of time blocked out to all get together on time in the same room. When you have people that all have multiple tour schedules that are all simultaneously happening and changing by the moment and trying to get everybody into that room it becomes a whole nother thing and it's fun because it becomes a challenge and it makes you have to act and think quick you know if, because it's one of those things if, you know i've got a player that's on with the get down for a few shows and somewhere along the line between the time that we've talked about doing those shows and the actual show date, they get a 30 show run with a major act. I'm not going to be like, you know, you probably ought to sit that one out, you know? Yeah. No, you know, it's not realistic. So there's so much, it's so fluid. So, you know, until we're really hitting the stage, it's like, well, this is who I think is going to be here. <laughs> Yeah, I think you have to have a bit of a chill and persistent makeup to be able to roll with that, which you seem to have. And, and um, the club owners out. They're like, well, who's going to be here? I'm like, oh, you know, a band of players that, you know, <laughs> have worked with us in the past. But no, I, I'm, I'm kind of joking about that. But <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, with today's technology, there's so much recording that's done with people from all over the place they'll just add their part and, you know, whatever. But you're talking about actually having them doing stuff at the same time. In a room, yep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so when did you first start pursuing it seriously? Well, um, when I linked up with, Derek Johnson and John Paul Miller from your mama's big fat booty band. Um, I had talked to Derek about the idea and he was the first person that was kind of like, Hey, yeah, let's do this. I was like, right on, let's do this. And so, uh, it wasn't too long after that, that JP got involved and, um, I would say October of 2007 is about the time that I put the throttle down and to, to, to kind of figure out how to, JP and I had some logistics to figure out about how we were going to, how we were going to do this. But from that time, it was really only about a month between that time and the time we were all down in New Orleans working on the first album. It happened very quick. 
it just wound up there was one window in uh, in uh december of 2007 that everybody was free and if we went down to new orleans that would also enable us to use a lot of our friends that were down there additionally without having to fly more people and 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 deal with more lodging because we had like i don't know it was like 30 35 people at that first session it was pretty massive <laughs> when you started to think about you know it's one thing for them to jam together but you're also actually sort of creating some compositions too yeah. uh when did you think that uh you would take it also to that level or did you sort of always think that well initially i would say we ex i don't know if we had an expectation but i think me personally, I felt like it was going to be more in the jam world, I suppose. Um, a lot more, oh, I guess one-off improv. Um, but pretty quickly, songs started to emerge, and we realized that it was going to take a different... Um, a different approach to properly put this music out that we that we were coming up with there um yeah it became a whole different creature very very quickly and because we have a lot of the music directors for these different bands that are part of the project um a lot of times everyone's kind of staying conscious about it needing to end up in song form so at times yeah we've got like 40 minute jams that go on forever with no direction and just kind of you know wherever it goes it goes but there's other times that you know we we have a, a goal to you know get some new instrumental beds because we do our stuff very very different um one when i bring everybody together at the studio. There's nothing pre-written. There's no ideas necessarily in mind. It's it's a trust of all the talent in the room and, and letting it, I guess letting everybody catch the vibe and, and feed off e each other and, and create what's happening in the now. Um, so it lends to some really energetic performance because you've got a lot of players that are playing for the very first time together that may not um have ever yeah i mean they, they may know who each other are or be friends but you know they've never really gotten a chance to plug in and just play so it, what was your studio experience to that point i mean had you even been in the studio yourself <laughs> no when I, when I when i when i first went in i was so green like when the big old massy get down came together i was i was in the industry for like six months if that i was still learning terms like backline and just basic stuff that's just common every day like lingo and vocabulary in the industry i would i knew nothing um luckily you know, everybody else had been in the studio before and, and we had a couple of people, one, one person that ultimately 
I wound up doing a lot of work with for many, many years, Frank Mapstone was super hip in the studio environment. So he was able to kind of help make us seem like we were more knowledgeable about that environment than we were. How'd you connect with him? Um, JP went to high school with him. And JP, I remember he's like, hey, my buddy Frank lives in Florida and he, he wants to get involved. And, and I was like, well, let's do this. And, and so Frank and I hit it off and he has been an integral part of a lot of, a lot of what we've done over the years. Um, you know, he's, he's ultimately became my production partner with, with the project and, um, yeah, we've worked on <laughs> on a lot of music together. On that first one, you know, how did you know or when did you decide, you know what, I think we got enough, let's go in? Well, that all was, again, kind of the, the just going by the seat of the pants philosophy. The original gathering was supposed to be a writing and rehearsing gathering and we would come back down and take everything into the studio but what was happening is we had been given a i think it was at least an eight or ten bedroom house down on royal street for all of us to stay in nice and we basically had a couple house parties and wrote most of the album during those house parties and JP and I realized, and, and I think Frank was also, you know, pushing pretty hard with, we need to get into the studio and record this now. Like, we shouldn't worry about going back. This needs to happen now. And so we wound up going in. And um, I think we started tracking that Wednesday. And at one point, it it, it was crazy because we had so many different musicians in that environment. Like we, we don't try to put everybody on a song. It's like traditional lineups. It's just, you know, some people are hanging while other people are playing, other people are eating. And, and so it just has this natural kind of evolution and movement as the day goes on that the lineup is continuously changing or there's an entire other band of musicians that could be writing while this other group is recording. And so for a while, for the, for that last day, we had one set of players that were tracking one set writing and others that were, you know, kind of helping hold the rest of it all together. And when we left new Orleans, what we had is what we had. How many days was it total? Seven days. Seven days. And two days of recording. So, no, maybe three, two and a half days. Because we got there on a Sunday and we left on a Saturday. So I guess Friday would have been the last. Yeah, so it was Wednesday, Thursday, Friday that we tracked. How was it financed in terms of, you know, putting it together? And also, were you able to compensate the musicians or were they just yeah. figuring they were doing it out of, you know, wanting the experience or, or what? Okay. So this has been entirely self-funded. 
everybody's been paid. Um, it's an incredibly heavy aspect of the project for me to carry and my family to carry. Um, because it, it's one of those things that it couldn't be structured like a regular band. It had to almost be structured more like a fantasy football team or a sports team to some degree because there was going to be some significant financial weight just in putting the album out and paying all of the players. Like JP and I had both come up with some money that we were going to put up for the for the project that we thought was going to cover the album and to be honest that first week down in new orleans all of it was gone <laughs> we were like oh shit it's gonna be this is gonna be a different a little different thing so um so a lot a lot of times it has to be set up where it's work for hire with the players because I, I, I can't ask somebody to do something for nothing in, in hopes that somewhere down the road it will do well enough for them to get paid. Um, but at the same time, you know, when you're dealing with that many players and especially of that level, it becomes it becomes brutal. I mean, it's, it's, I love it. I absolutely love doing this. Um, it has not been for the money. Um, because it, it's been something that has to be, that's not self-sustaining. So every year I'm having to put you know, a, a decent amount of um, investment into it to keep it going because we're competing with, and not, I don't say competing because like I don't feel any competitive aspect on, from my side, but we're competing with artists that have multi-million dollar budgets behind them um, and trying to get the same kind of exposure and the same kind of, um, I guess, uh, opportunity that, that some of these other acts are, are getting. And, and I find myself a lot of times where unless you've got just stacks and stacks of cash building a momentum to catch that fire is a constant, you know, start it from a number again over and over again you know yeah. and that's like you know that's tough that it's really tough because album sales you know you sell albums as an artist you sell you sell you know merch but um we don't tour that much so a lot of that is not necessarily as readily available as it is with, with other with other bands because uh, you know back to what i was saying before is like other bands you've got you know five or six players they're sharing in the risk and sharing in the reward mm -hmm. and 
to me, it's like, I can't ask grown adults to go out and do this and, you know, sleep on, you know, five people in a hotel room or something. It's, you know, people have to be treated with respect and, you know, and that costs sometimes money to, to be able to provide an environment that's suitable. Yeah, no doubt. So let's talk about the, the financing. It's, it's an ongoing thing. It's an ongoing thing. Like it's, it's what keeps me up at night, keeps me working all day. 